Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now, before I introduce my guest this week, just a polite reminder, uh, please do subscribe, won't you? Um, our subscriptions have been going up and up and up recently, but uh, we don't want to be complacent about it. So please do. It's uh, totally free, as you must know by now. And uh, once you've done that, if you go next door, you'll see there's another little bell sign and that tells you how to get notifications. So uh, uh, do that and join, uh, join the thousands who are already doing it. Um, now, uh, you will be very aware from what we talk about on this channel that, <clears throat> frankly, all of our public discourse now, particularly about history, is dominated by the narrative of a rancidly racist, greedy and violent empire. Now, to challenge any of that narrative takes a lot of courage. In fact, one often doesn't see it that much. Uh, but I'm very pleased to say that my guest today is one such writer. Um, Regis Professor Emeritus of Pastoral and Moral Theology at Oxford, Nigel Bigger. Thank you very much for coming, Nigel. Thank Thanks you. for inviting me back. The, yes, of course, because this is your second visit, <laughs> isn't it? Um, the book we're talking about is Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning. It's already a bestseller. I couldn't recommend it more. Um, before we talk about the subjects in the book, Nigel, this almost didn't see the light of day, isn't that right? That's right, that's right. Um, um, I was commissioned to, to write it in 2018 by Bloomsbury Publishing, and I produced a manuscript at the end of 2020. My editor loved it, he said it was an important book, he reckoned it might sell up to 20,000 copies, but uh, three months later, the top of Bloomsbury sent me an email saying, we're going to postpone publication indefinitely. Um, but I wasn't willing to let them go that easily, so I, I pressed them gently in a couple of emails saying, which public feeling are you referring to? Because there, there are many public feelings. Yeah. And um, when might it uh, be favorable to publish in your view? And uh, we had a couple of exchanges by email um, and they didn't answer my questions. Uh, but apparently, in spite of not being able to tell me which public feeling they were worried about, they uh, announced that they were going to uh, uh, return my contract. But you did actually get another publisher. Yeah, eventually. Uh, um, yes, I mean, I, I, I spent several hundred pounds on a, on a lawyer to try and see if I could hold Bloomsbury to, to their contract to discover that uh, there was a clause in it that let, let them out. Um, but then, um, uh, happily, uh, about two months later, I was able to sign a contract with uh, William Collins, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Right. And they brought the book out uh, two uh, weeks ago. Right. I mean, it is, as I said in the, the um, introduction there, uh, it is unusual, is it not, to actually see <laughs> even the most nuanced argument uh, saying that perhaps the well, imperialism and the British Empire in particular were not necessarily all motivated by evil. Um, I, what I want to start by asking you, actually, is that in the, the, the very beginning, you talk about why you wanted to write this book. Uh, I'm just going to read it, if I mm. can. I think it's very good. We're talking about the current time. Uh, what is at stake at the moment is not merely the pedantic truth about yesterday, but the self-perception and self-confidence of the British today and the way they conduct themselves in the world tomorrow. What is also at stake, therefore, is the very integrity of the United Kingdom and the security of the West. That is why 
I have written this book. Now, that seems to be a noble motive. Um, can you expand on that? Yes, um, th th there were two stimuli for, for my writing the book in the first place. I, I, I'm both English and Scottish. I was born in Scotland, educated in England. I identify myself as, as British, uh, so I'm committed to the United Kingdom and keeping the UK united. So I, I, I've always been an opponent of Scottish separatism. Um, and I noticed uh, when uh, reading um, certain Scottish nationalists um, in and around the 2014 referendum that uh, some of them uh, um, thought of or think of Scottish separation from the UK, Scottish independence as a kind of national self-purification of um, Scotland from Britain and Britain equals empire equals evil. Um, and so uh, uh, my contribution to combating uh, the, the, um, the feelings that generate support for Scottish independence was to push back against that, um, that, that travesty of Britain's imperial history. And that's why well, one reason I wrote that book. But, but more generally, um, I observed that, um, as, as is evident, and you'll know this, um, at the moment, although there's much talk about empire and colonialism, uh, no one cares about um, the Arab empires yeah. of the medieval period or uh, African empires, the Zulu empire or the Comanche empire in the, in, in, uh, the southwest of, of North America or the Chinese empire. No one cares about non-white empires or non-European empires. So what's the, what's the obsession? Why the obsession with European empires and yes. especially the British? And it's, my, my reading is this, is, this is an assault on the record of the West. So exactly, it's almost by proxy. So th this kind of uh, assault on, on the empire academically is actually really about the West today. Yes, it? and it, it's, it, it's, it's our equivalent of the assault on the foundations of the United States. So yes. in the United States, yes. there is this 1619 project mm -hmm. who, uh, whose claim is that the very the very foundations of the United States are racist and therefore uh, the, the American project is from the beginning uh, morally vicious and mm -hmm. illegitimate. So the, the debate over colonialism here is, is our equivalent to that. Are you surprised? I mean, wh what are your, why do you think this has sort of blown up in the past, what, three years? I'm not saying there hasn't always been this narrative, but in the past three years, uh, particularly in America, with the 1619 project, as you just mentioned. Yes. It's gone at this extraordinary speed, it seems to me. Why? Um, so, so two things. I, I think social media, of course, uh, um, makes, uh, brings uh, ideas from the margins to the center very quickly, uh, and they just spread. Uh, uh, and insofar as institutions care about what goes on in social media, um, um, the, these, um, movements that expand through social media can become quite powerful. So there's that. Uh, but the other thing is, um, I mean, we had, a, we had the adumbration, the kind of, the, the, the heralding of, of the, the, the current mood um, when the Rose Must Fall campaign arrived in Britain from South Africa in 2015-16. And then what happened was um, um, the killing of George Floyd in the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement, which, which was an American movement, um, suddenly landed over here and various activist groups on the left 
um, um, promoted it um, as if the UK were the US. Mm. Um, uh, so it, it's as if um, whatever problems the US suffers from in terms of race and in terms of their fundamentally racist society is equally true of us. Um, so if you, if, you, if you put together social media, um, the, the uh, political interest of activist groups exploiting Black Lives Matter, combined with widespread ignorance, even among educated um, degree-holding citizens in Britain, people who run institutions, widespread ignorance of our imperial history. No one knows enough to contradict uh, um, the, the, um, uh, the radically negative narrative. And that, that's one reason I wrote the book. At least, if, if no one agrees with my argument, at least in the pages of my book, they will discover the whole truth. The good, and the, the good and the bad, the bad and the good about our imperial past. You see, that seems to be key to me, that in fact, you know, people just simply don't know. They don't know the facts, you know, they don't yeah. know. Even if they want to, you know, uh, come to a conclusion which is not the same as mine or yours or whatever, they simply don't know the facts. And, you know, you do come across people now, younger people particularly, who seriously think that slavery was a uniquely British thing for example, yes. um, that the, even colonialism was a British <coughs> thing. Because although the British Empire features in your book, it's actually about imperialism, isn't it, generally? Um, I'm intrigued, the title is A Moral Reckoning, and you know, that ethics is your field, isn't it? So That's how right. does that <coughs> differ from being an historical reckoning? Right, so um, as you say, I'm an ethicist, so I'm in the business of, of um, analyzing uh, issues and coming to a moral judgment about them. Um, that, that's my trade, that's, that's my profession. Um, and so um, what I've tried to do is to, I mean, I, it, in, in the course of my career, I have um, worked on the ethics of war, for example. So I've, I've, I've tried to come to judgments about various wars, present and past. Um, and so I tried something more ambitious here to, 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 to um, reach a moral judgment an overall moral judgment about um, the phenomenon of empire and, and the particular phenomenon of one empire, namely, namely the British. Um, now, lots of my critics, um, uh, particularly on the, on the far left, uh, uh, point out that Bigger is not an historian, uh, and so Bigger really has no authority to speak about these matters, uh, to which my swift response is, well, no, and you're not, you're not ethicists, and yet apparently you've got very strong moral views yeah, about the past. <laughs> uh, so uh, um, 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 the, the book is organized, it's not a history of the British Empire, it's organized according to moral issues like racism and, and violence and um, economic issues and uh, cultural assimilation, that kind of thing. Um, so it's organized in terms of moral issue, uh, but obviously I, I have to try and get the historical facts straight, yes. so so I know what I'm judging, um, and so I've I've taken care, particularly when um, dealing with issues I know are controversial, to read more than one historian, mm. um, and uh, um, as you'll see at the beginning of the book, there are about ten pre-publication commendations by historians. So many professional historians reckon I've done a decent job, although I'm quite sure that <laughs> given given the vastness of the territory in terms of geographical extent from British Columbia to New Zealand 
and in terms of time from 1600 to 1960, there will be mistakes in there. But uh, several historians who've read the text reckon it's a, it's a pretty balanced and fair judgment. I've never seen so many notes, actually, I have to say. It's <laughs> <laughs> gone on to, for I, ages. <laughs> I had to cover my rear end. But also, I decided to, to spare the reader some of my skirmishes with my critics. Right. But, so, but there's, some good, there's some good stuff in the notes. Actually, <laughs> speaking of your skirmishes with critics, in some ways, you sort of found your... Is it right to say, actually, you sort of found yourself in this position? Uh, because you wrote a piece, didn't you, for the Times? This would have been 2015, I think? Uh, 17. 17? Yeah. So, you know, basically before the Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Talking about how, look, you know, uh, it's a more nuanced picture. There was good and bad in, in everything, and that includes the British Empire. And um, basically the roof came down on you, didn't it? That's right. So this was December 17. Um, in July of that year, I'd, I'd launched um, a research project called Ethics and Empire, which was designed to, to uh, um, look at empires from ancient China to the modern period and look at how contemporaries viewed empire in moral terms. So this was nothing to do with defending British empire. But then you're right, in November of uh, 2017, I published an article in the Times uh, arguing that, that we British can, can fry, find cause for both um, shame and pride in our imperial past. And it was a week or two later that uh, Dr. Priyam Gopal from Cambridge University tweeted to her um, allies, her political allies in Oxford, uh, OMG, oh my God, this is serious, SHIT, we must block capitals, shut this down, is what is she tweeted. Is this Gopal? Gopal, yeah. yeah. Um, which, looking back, um, um, uh, uh, betrayed more than a hint of panic, frankly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but at the time, no, I, I was a completely innocent. I, I didn't, didn't know what had hit me. And then, then in the space of, th uh, of one week, there were three online um, um, mass denunciations, the last two by sets of academics. And, and my, my main collaborator on the Ethics and Empire project, uh, who was, who is arguably the preeminent historian of empire writing writing in English, mm. he jumped ship within four days. So really? the, the, the project was severely damaged at that point. Um, but happily again, uh, in the course of the next 12 months, we recovered and uh, we, we've, we've had four um, conferences since. Uh, about over 40 uh, historians have taken part in, the, in our various conferences, in spite of the fact that the Oxford Centre for Global History has continued to boycott us. Really? Yeah. Mm. So we're, ha we're having the the, the, the final mm. the final conference this coming June. How does it? Uh, how do you feel about that as an academic? I mean, do you do you get very anxious about it? I mean, when you've been under that kind of, you know, pressure yes. or criticism. Well, um, when I first fell into it, I was very anxious about it. I, I didn't know what had hit me. I I, mm. I had I. Uh, some close friends who said you must drop this project because it's just too mm. toxic. Uh, so I did wonder whether I was daft. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I didn't know. I mean, although you know, I was then uh, a senior, well-established academic. I, I wasn't sure whether uh, my project and, and my reputation would survive. Um, and I was uh, most of all. I think I was just dismayed and perplexed at the behavior of 
fellow academics, some of them in my own university, yeah. the, the, the mm. aggression, mm. Um, uh, and uh, um, I mean now now I've, I'm used to it. I'm, I'm aware that there <laughs> there are people out there who are determined uh, to attack me and people like me uh, who are not going to be fair and who don't really want a conversation. And I, one thing I've learned is if people don't want a conversation and they usually betray it by being aggressive and provocative, yeah. I, I just don't engage with them. There's, there's no point. Um, but there is a, there is a, a problem with, with acad some academics uh, who are very aggressive and who will not listen and you know, I, I'm sure there, there are, there are r respects in which I deserve to be corrected um, uh, in a kind of give and take exchange of reasons. Um, but that's not the, the, the mood that no. possesses a lot of these folk. No. Uh, most of them are younger. Yeah. Um, um, so I, I, I won't say it's, it, it, it's, it's all historians. Um, uh, but the, the other thing I've learned is that um, there, there is, there is a, a, an aggressive, zealous minority. Uh, there's a much larger number of academics who don't like trouble, who don't like conflict, and uh, who just keep quiet. Well, you see, I think a majority of people, public, not just the reading public, um, increasingly keep quiet because of they feel, they feel what might happen to them, you know, and, and it, it's a, a kind of very, it, well, it's an appalling atmosphere that we're living in at the moment, I think, generally. Um, but I think that, you know, commonsensically, they would see, well, actually, <clears throat> you know, yes, there must have been good and bad things about the Bush Empire. Uh, that I feel that th they would feel that, you know? Yeah, yeah they, they, and, they, and they do. Um, um, uh, I, mean, I mean, the fact this book, um, within two weeks, is number 10 in the Sunday Times bestseller list, I'm told, we'll have to see it on Sunday. Uh, I mean, that tells us that there is a very large appetite for what other people have described as a balanced, yes, fair treatment yeah, of the yes, past. Yeah. Uh, and my, my um, I'm not pessimistic about the future, Peter, because my consistent experience and observation has been um, that there is a silent, cowed, uncertain majority out there who it, under the right conditions will will speak their minds um, I mean I was very encouraged a couple of years ago um, there was a, a, an occasion in Cambridge University where the university at, at the top of the university wanted to um, um, pass a regulation that would require all members of the university to respect the opinions of other people and um, mm. Um, a colleague, a friend of mine in Cambridge, Arif Ahmed, who's a, an atheist philosopher, um, thought to himself, he said, well, you can ask me to tolerate views mm. I think are nonsense. Don't ask me to respect things I think are nonsense. Mm. Yeah. And so he decided to um, mount a, um, a counteraction and that required a, um, a debate to be held in the as a university um, assembly w to which all academics belong. In order to get a debate going, uh, he had to uh, put down a motion. In order to, to uh, propose a motion, uh, he had to get, I think, 25 signatures. It took him weeks to get 25 academics with the courage to put their names to this motion, even though many said to him, we agree with what, you, what you're doing, we're grateful that you're doing that, but we're not going to sign mm -hmm. this. 
But here's the thing. He got his motion. It was debated. A vote was held. And uh, the university proposal failed by four to one. Really? But here's the other thing. The reason for that was the vote was by secret ballot. Ah. So the, okay. the, the bad news yeah, is yeah. Ah. people are still scared, mm. too scared to say what they think, even in our universities. And that's really bad news. The good news is, under the right conditions, uh, there are plenty of sensible people out there who will, who, will, who will rise. But we've got to create the conditions where they feel free to do that. Well, you know, we get so many letters and emails and, and comments from people who feel very much, well, bewildered and beleaguered, particularly when it comes to the kind of, well, I say decimation of their, their history. And, you know, they don't feel equipped to say it. I just wanted to ask you some questions yeah. based on the chapters, which are, as you say, they're, they're very much, um, you know, they're, they're sort of uh, very much in the sort of sense of philosophical questions. It's not chronological as such, is it? I yeah. Mean, yeah. So, for example, um, if someone to say, well, I'm, you know, my friend here, or my neighbour is constantly saying that the British Empire was built on nothing but violence and racism. What can I say to that? Okay. Um, I know, look, you, it's extremely detailed in here. I'm, so I'm just asking <laughs> you to summarise. I mean, I should yeah. say, by the way, if it's, it's this incredibly yeah. detailed book, but as it should indeed be. Is, is it incredibly what? Detailed. Oh, right. Okay, good. Good. I hope it's readable. Oh, no, no, absolutely <laughs> is. But I mean, the fact is, yeah. people need to be, you know, acquainted with the facts. Yeah, yeah, fine. But what would you say in that situation? Somebody's arguing, and this is an okay. argument that happens all the time now. Yeah. Uh, and so, so the, the phrase colonialism and slavery is, is now common as if the two things were the yes. same thing. So one easy way to, to, to counter that uh, simplistic reduction of British Empire to racism and violence is to say, uh, but um, from the... Uh, from 1807, when the British abolished the slave trade within their territories, and then 1833, when they abolished slavery throughout the British Empire, and thereafter, uh, when the British uh, suppressed slavery across the Atlantic, across Africa, to Malaysia, um, they did so in the name of a largely Christian, partly Enlightenment conviction mm. that all human beings regardless of race and regardless of cultural development, are basically equal under God, mm. right? So, so a lot of imperial endeavor from the early 19th century onwards was motivated by a fundamental conviction of human equality, anti-racist, anti-slavery. So you've got that. And then, um, yes, the British Empire was often violent and sometimes the violence was illegitimate. In, in the book, for example, I say the, the, the opium wars of the 1840s against the Qing Empire and China were, I think, uh, unjustified. Um, and there are other instances there too. Um, the, the, the infamous uh, um, massacre at Am Amritsar in 1919, mm. for example. But then <coughs> I say, um, the British Empire was at its most violent when? Between 1939 and 1945, and between May 1940, uh, after France had fallen, and before June 1941, when Hitler uh, was unwise enough to invade Soviet Russia, in that 12-month period, the British Empire offered the only mm -hmm. military resistance to the massively murderous, racist empire based in Berlin, with the sole exception of Greece. 
So yes, it was violent, but some, you know, sometimes violence is justified, yeah, and yeah. it wasn't always unjustified violence. Yeah. So th those are those are two things. Two two. There's, you know, there's a lot more detail I could put in there, but those are two uh, major events and um, policies of the British Empire th that tell against the simplistic reduction. What about the, the other simplistic reduction, maybe, which is that it was based entirely on sort of capitalistic greed, all about money? Yes, OK. Well, uh, uh, um, the, the empire often began, often began um, with trade. So the East India Company was a trading company, and it set up, uh, it negotiated uh, the use of ports in India, um, and, and the East India Company was in the business of making money. Uh, and, and speaking for myself, I'm, I'm not a Marxist. <laughs> I see nothing wrong with making money. Um, there are good and bad ways of doing it, of course, but nothing wrong with making money. Um, and uh, um, uh, so uh, what happened in India was that um, the, the, the company traded with Indian merchants and uh, there was um, 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 a breakdown of law and order um, um, away from the coast and this disrupted trade and so the East India Company ended up uh, allying itself with, mm. with certain Indian parties uh, in order to, to beat their enemies and uh, as a reward the, the company was granted lands and sometimes even ports. So it started with trade and then grew into, into issues to do with security and eventually uh, the East India Company ended up governing parts of India. But uh, as um, the um, Bengal-born Bengal and uh, now um, LSE-based um, economic historian, uh, Titanka Roy, will say, uh, the alliance between, between Indians and, and British was, was often by choice. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, in, in certain circumstances, Indians, particularly Indian merchants, preferred British rule to what else was, was an offer. And British rule was never simply us on top of them. It was us cooperating with them uh, to, to create um, 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 a, a political environment that served everyone's interests. Do you have any you know, truck with the idea that, uh, again, that somehow in the general pantheon of empires, the British Empire was actually quite a benign one? Yeah, well, certainly uh, um, it would be easy to compare the British Empire to the, 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 the imperial expansion of Genghis Khan, for example. Yep. <laughs> uh, um, uh, who, who uh, I believe after, uh, uh, when he besieged cities, tended to slaughter everybody and, and um, create pyramids of skulls, uh, just to make a certain point. Um, so, yes, I, I, I do think, uh, insofar as the empire, the British Empire was motivated by humanitarian concerns and so the the concern to um, suppress slavery was one of those um, British officials um, in Australia and um, North America uh, were often very distressed at the the um, the, the plight of, of native Australians and Native Americans um, particularly because of the inadvertent impact of disease yes. Europeans brought uh, diseases to um, Australia and and uh, North America uh, against which native peoples were not immunized this wasn't this wasn't deliberate <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but the but the British officials were, were often distraught to observe the devastation that was was uh, um, um, to which native peoples were subject and and they sought to ameliorate uh, both that and and they were aware that 
um, conflict between settlers and natives was often brutal, and the natives were often um, dealt with unjustly, and they sought to control it. Um, so um, there certainly were, were significant humanitarian strands, and also there was a liberal political strand um, that you can see when you observe the fact that Yes, um, the, the British lost the American colonies because um, we tried to hang on to them too tightly. Um, but we learned from that. And uh, as a consequence, from the 1860s onwards, uh, Canada, Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand become increasingly autonomous and independent. Mm -hmm. So that by 1930, each of those is virtually an independent state. They're uh, dominions, aren't they? The dominions, that's right. Uh, and even uh, by um, the 1920s, mm. India was set on the same path. So, so the, the, we, we, we were sufficiently liberal politically that we recognised that if the empire was to survive at all, it would have to, to evolve into um, an alliance of uh, culturally and politically um, um, similar and, and allied nations, mm. independent states. Mm. Um. What do you see looking to to the future? I mean, apart from reading your book, what can people do? When you look at the younger generation uh, who know nothing about it, but, but also have very strong views now because yes. of what they've been taught, how on earth do we rebalance that? Well, it's going to take time, um, um, and it's going to take. I, I think. Um, Often people are uh, in institutions, and the institutions are led by certain people. And right now, a lot of our cultural institutions are dominated by the uh, the narrative that colonialism equals slavery equals yes. racism. Yeah. Um, uh, so I, I think what needs to happen is, is is actually that narrative needs to be dislodged from our institutions, yeah. and it's going to take time. But the 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 good news, Peter, is that um, there are movements of resistance that have grown up in the last uh, 30, 40 months. Uh, for example, um, within the National Trust, we've got Restore Trust. Yeah, yeah. We've got History, History Reclaimed yeah. that has about 40 historians who write for it. Uh, although Bloomsbury did cancel my book, it's been published. Yes. And um, look at the, the popularity of it. So. Yes. In time, um, I, I, I hope this this um, um, this phase whereby um, the, the the BLM narrative about Britain being systemically racist, which I think is, is patently untrue, uh, and our, 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 our recent imperial history being a litany of racism and oppression and and uh, disproportionate violence, uh, that will become increasingly questioned. Um, and, and my book will make a contribution to that, I hope. Absolutely. It's a sort of generational thing, really, isn't it? It's going to, it's going to take I quite think, a long time. I think that's right. Well, um, at the end, you, you, you do have, as it were, well, you, you make a moral reckoning, you know, you, you, you evaluate, you know, but I don't know quite how one does that. But, you know, what was the conclusion you came to? Well, let, let me tell you how, how I, I tried to do it. Yeah. Um, because in the conclusion, uh, having surveyed the history of the British Empire, I say, well, here here's a list of all the the bad things, all the evils. And by evils, I don't just mean 
deliberate wrongs, I also mean evils like inadvertent disease, okay, and and famine that we didn't manage to deal with very well. And then here are the, the benefits, the good things. And I say, you know, there's no rational way of, of saying this weighs more heavily than that. So, so we can't say that um, uh, um, the, the benefit of the rule of law um, weighs more heavily than um, 150 years of slavery. Yes, I mean, I mean yeah. you, you just can't compare the two. Can't, so can't do it that way. What, what you can do is you can say, well, um, was it something in the British Empire at its very heart that was essentially, centrally, crucially evil? Mm. Uh, now, we do say that about the Nazi Empire. Mm. So, you know, Adolf Hitler built autobahns, which was good. <laughs> Mussolini made the trains around time in Italy, which was good. But we don't think that that compensates in any way for uh, the, um, the uh, as I put it before, the, the massively murderous racist heart um, of, of the Nazi regime. So can we say that the British Empire was of that kind? And, and this is what the, 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 the radical um, anti-colonialists are, are trying to tell us. They're oh, trying yes, to tell, yes. tell us that the British Empire was equivalent to Nazism, that mm -hmm. Churchill was like Hitler, um, uh, and that we committed uh, genocide like the Holocaust. So one conclusion I come to, and, and the reader can make up his own mind as to whether this um, is a cogent conclusion, is that there was nothing, there was nothing in the British Empire approximate to Nazism, nothing at all. So I, I, I clear that charge aside. And then I say, well, in addition to that, um, there were um, persistent uh, humanitarian and liberal strands in the empire. Um, and then look at the, look at the, the way the empire died. Um, so the empire exhausted itself in 1939 to 45. Um, Hitler, uh, uh, Churchill did not have to take us, uh, to keep us in the war against Hitler in May 1940. We could have negotiated uh, um, an agreement with Hitler. Hitler would probably have let us keep the empire. Yes. But Hitler, Churchill rightly put, put both Britain and the empire at risk uh, for the sake of, of opposing this, uh, this um, murderous, racist challenge to liberal, hum humane, Christian civilization. He was right to do that, uh, and the empire exhausted itself in, in fighting that. So that has to say something good about what the empire had become. Also, it, it basically let itself go very easily, didn't it? I mean, it, you know, the pe people just, there was no fight, there was no, it was accepted, you know, the, the decolonization process, the real one, you know, that happened over, what, 30, 40 years in the post-war years, was very easy. Well, it's not entirely true. I mean, the, 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 you know, the word disturbances, the Mau Mau disturbances in Kenya, but, but, but th that wasn't essentially an independence movement. There were particular reasons for that which I try to explain. <coughs> But yes, I mean, decolonization the 50s and 60s um, was, uh, uh, Britain, I think, accepted that, um, but apart from the fact that we were bankrupt after the Second World War, and we had no stomach for holding on to these things. Um, um, and we also accepted that, that once there was a, a widespread mass movement calling for independence, we were not prepared to, to, to shed yes, blood yeah. on a massive scale to stop it. So we, we tried to uh, navigate um, uh, independence as best we could. Um, many people then, 
particularly with regard to Africa, thought we were decolonizing too quickly. And I think a lot of people now, um, looking back, even those who supported independence, might well think the same thing. Um, um, uh, But given our condition in the 1950s and and early 60s, um, uh, it would have been difficult to impossible and probably not right to, to hang on to to the colonies. But you are, broadly speaking, when it comes to the, the whole way in which we treat our history, broadly optimistic, you say, for the future, even though it might take... Well, yes, I'm optimistic, partly for the reason I said, I mean, I mean there are signs that, that uh, resistance has begun to gather mm. steam. Mm. There's clearly a market for reasonable mm. uh, views. Uh, and the other reason I'm optimistic, Peter, is that in the last five years, I, I've had reason to look at what my critics say, and uh, uh, the number of passages in the book which, you, which you'll have read, where I, I decide to, to expose um, the, um, the, the weakness of, for example, Dan Hicks' account of what happened in, in Benin in 1897, or Hilary Beckles' uh, argument that Britain should pay reparations. So I, I, I deliberately dismantle these uh, these arguments just to, to show the weakness of them. Um, I, I, every time I encounter my critics, I come away thinking they're wrong. <laughs> they're just wrong. Yes. And uh, I, I do know that the truth does not truth and reason don't always triumph in, in political life. Uh, but it does make me feel on a strong footing that that um, the, the 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 nakedness of of these anti-colonialist emperors can be exposed. Yes. Well, this is a great start, if not a landmark. Um, Colonialism and Moral Reckoning, there by Nigel Bigger. It's available, obviously, in uh, Amazon and shops. Oh, for, 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 yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. On the Waterstones yeah. and everything. Yeah. Thank you very, very much indeed for coming on, Nigel. I've enjoyed and, the conversation. Thank you. And, and all, all the very best. Um, and I hope it's uh, number one on the list in a few weeks' time. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, That's it for this week. We shall see you next time. Also, what you're saying is thank you. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.